All right, good morning. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for braving the rain this morning and coming out to worship with us. Thanks, Seth. Thank you guys for, for leading us in, in worship. Uh, if you did not get a listening guide, please put your hand up, and Alex in the back will make sure that you get a copy, and that will help you follow along with our time of teaching this morning. Uh, my name is Tom. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my great delight to open up God's Word for us this morning. Uh, one thing that you may not know about me is that I have long had a fascination with knives. Um, Not primarily hunting knives or combat knives. No, I've always liked multifunction knives. I've, I've always loved the knives with all the little blades and attachments and things that can do lots and lots of different things. My, my personal favorite has always been the Leatherman knives. I love having a full set of pliers in there for all kinds of household tasks. But of course, the most famous is going to be the Swiss Army knife. That, that's just a, a term for almost anything at all that, that can do a lot of different things, the Swiss Army knife. And I've had lots of those too. When, I remember when I first joined the Boy Scouts years and years ago, my very first Swiss Army knife um, had all the different blades on it. I was always trying to find different things I could do with all the little tools. I had to work really, really hard though with the corkscrew. For, for some reason, you're 11 years old and every knife they give you has a corkscrew. And I was trying to figure out what, what, do, you, what do you do with this thing besides open a bottle of wine? I, I don't know why a, a 12-year-old kid gets a knife with a corkscrew, but that's, that's the way they make them. Um, but what I've always loved about this type of knife is its versatility, its, its usefulness. Um, I've had Swiss Army knives that have magnifying glasses, screwdrivers, one that was about, seriously, about two inches wide with at least 30 blades on it that had a little, a little uh, pen inside, a little toothpick, and I was always finding different tasks, different things I could do to, to, to put this Swiss Army knife to good use. There's no area of life where a good multifunction knife is not going to come in handy. Well, our text before us this morning in Colossians is one of the absolute Swiss Army knife texts in all of Scripture. And I dare say there is no area of your life this morning that will not benefit from the tools that this text will bring to bear upon it. It is a spiritual Swiss army knife with a thousand blades. It makes it a profoundly exciting and terrifying text to preach because I know that there is literally no sphere of your life today that God cannot and will not use this text to affect There is no sphere where the blades of this text cannot cut away your old self and prune you to be more like Jesus Christ. And I have come to know this firsthand this week as I have been preparing this text and have seen how God has used its blades to cut away the old self in me. So with no further ado, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father 
through him. This is the word of our God. Let us pray. Father, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this is a spiritual Swiss army knife of a text with a thousand blades, and it can touch any area of your life this morning, but there is also a profound danger with this text, because as we read it, and as it says words like, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, there can be a tendency in us to say, just keep doing what you've already been doing. To say, if, if everything in my life is supposed to be done for the glory of Christ, then I can just kind of do what I'm already doing, and, and really nothing has to be done any differently. I promise you this morning, there is no area of your life where you are making it. There is no area of your life where you do not need to listen and heed and obey this text. So I I beg and beseech you as one of your pastors this morning to let every area of your life be open and vulnerable to this text, even as the blades cut and cause momentary pain so that you can be made more like Christ under the ministrations of this text. And within this text, we find an all-encompassing, glorious command, the command to live for Christ in every sphere of our lives. And Paul will focus this command in the text first on the sphere of the communal life of the church before broadening his focus to include every area of our lives. Look with me first at verse 16. Paul begins this verse with a present active imperative. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He is exhorting the Colossians to obedience. However, they are not the subject of this sentence, but but rather the object. The word is performing the main verb to dwell, but Paul is giving them a command. Make sure this happens. Make sure the word dwells in you. And it's, it's easy to see why this is the case. This command runs parallel to one we looked at last week that Dave unpacked for us in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Christ gives his word just as he gives his peace. And as we advance in the Christian life, we need to yield day by day by the grace of God more and more to the control of the word of Christ just as we do to the control of the peace of Christ, as David talked about last week. Now, why does Paul refer to it as as the word of Christ in particular? He's, He's talking about Holy Scripture, but he's much more fond of using the phrase the word of God or the word of the Lord in other places. So it's possible that this is a deliberate move to keep the focus of the Colossians on the person and work of Christ. The false teachers, you'll remember, have been trying to take the focus off Christ and put the focus of the Colossians on their works instead. But Paul keeps the focus on Christ as he concludes this whole paragraph here on Christian living. It is Christ's word that is to dwell in the hearts and the minds of the Colossians. And if I may make a comment in passing, the the interchangeability here of the phrases word of God and word of Christ completely blows away this false distinction between the the red letters and the black letters in our Bible. 
There's, there's a movement within the church called the Red Letter Christians, and it's really an effort to, to decanonize everything in the Bible that is not a direct quotation of Jesus. It's presented as an effort to get back to basic Christianity, the real essentials of Christianity. But all it's going to do is muzzle the Lord Jesus Christ and prevent us from hearing what he has to say in every part of his inspired word. Now, if you have a Bible this morning that has red letters in it, that, that's, that's okay, that's fine. You don't need to throw it out the window right now. But I beg and beseech you, do not act as though the black letters are somehow less inspired because Jesus is actively speaking to you in every syllable of your Bible regardless of what color the text is printed in. And because that's true, you need to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does this mean? Uh, The Greek word here for dwell is used elsewhere by Paul to describe God's dwelling among his people in uh, 2 Corinthians 6.16, the Holy Spirit dwelling in believers, Romans 8.11, and faith dwelling in God's people, 2 Timothy 1.5. And know that the word of Christ is meant to dwell in us richly, abundantly. This is a term that Paul uses elsewhere to describe God's generous, abundant provision of material gifts, his provision of the Holy Spirit, his provision of the entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. God does not give his word sparingly, just as he does not give those other things sparingly. He does not give it in small doses. He does not use the eyedropper, but the fire hose. The word is not meant to have merely a a superficial sprinkling outward effect, but it is meant to to get down under our skins and live deeply in us. The idea is one of presence and controlling influence. Peter O'Brien describes this as letting the gospel have its gracious and glorious way in the life of the believer. This is much more than just reading the Bible. It, It is much more than even obeying the Bible. It is letting ourselves be saturated by the Bible. It is letting the word of Christ dominate and dictate our thoughts, our desires, our attitudes, our interests, our loves, our relationships, how we respond to stress and fear and difficulty and prosperity and comfort and ease all the same. It means that in whatever we do, the living and active word of God is the controlling influence It means that we become men and women like the Puritan John Bunyan, of whom Charles Spurgeon remarked, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God, and I commend his example to you, beloved. Letting the word of Christ dwell in us means that our very souls are filled with the essence of the Bible. Are you filled with the Bible like this? When you face difficulty and hardship and trouble, or when you face prosperity and ease and good times, what controls your response to these things? When the pins and needles of life prick you, what color do you bleed? 
Do you bleed your own thoughts and ideas? The thoughts and ideas of the world? Or do you bleed the very essence of the word of Christ as you allow it to dwell in you? We need to let the word soak into every area of our individual lives as Christians. But this command means more than just we as individuals being transformed in this way. It it starts there, but it by no means ends there. Because there is a clear communal direction to this text. Individual Christians are to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, but it needs to spill over into the communal life that they live with their brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. For the word of Christ to richly dwell in believers, we can't go it alone. We can't be content to just download our Bible app and follow our reading plan in the mornings and then drive to work listening to a sermon on our commute. No, we need to interact in a meaningful, Scripture-saturated way with other believers. The Word needs to dwell in us and dominate our hearts and our thoughts until it spills out into every interaction we have with other Christians. Let me ask you this morning, are you trying to go it alone in your Christian life? Have you bought into the idea that you can love Christ but not love the church? Do you see the one another's in Scripture as optional? Do you read the, the, the second person pronouns, the you's in the Bible as singular or as plural? Do you read the Bible as addressed just to you individually or addressed to you as part of a local body of believers? And if so, if it's the former, or the latter I should say, how is that going for you? If you are a follower of Christ, he has not given you an individualistic salvation. He hasn't just freed you from the consequences of your sin. He has brought you from a life of loneliness and isolation and separation into a glorious, multi-ethnic, multi-national, multi-generational family. There's a reason that that's one of the most pervasive metaphors in all of Scripture, adoption. We are brought into a family when we are saved in Christ Jesus. You were made for this. You were made for family. You were made to laugh and cry and hurt and be hurt and forgive and be forgiven and share in the burdens of this already but not yet resurrected fallen band of saints that is called the local church. And if you do not have that already, we invite you to consider making this church, making Trinity Church your home. We are by no means a perfect church, but we are a church that is striving to follow this command that we be a people in whom the word of Christ richly dwells. And if we are that kind of people, Paul says that we will be teaching and admonishing one another. The word dwelling in and among the people of Christ is supposed to result in mutual teaching and admonition, mutual instruction in the faith and warning against the dangers of sin. And it's a distinctive and interesting command for Paul. He frequently commands that the elders of the church are to be preaching and teaching. He includes this among the work that he and his fellow missionary workers are doing. But here, he's not specifically addressing elders. He's addressing every single member of the church. Every believer is to teach and admonish one another and to receive teaching and admonishment from one another in the context of normal church life. Now, this in no way gets the elders of the church off the hook. 
that there is a reason I am standing here preaching a text that commands all of us to teach and admonish one another. Paul commands elders elsewhere in Scripture to do this work and preach and teach these things. These things are vital and important to the church. As the preaching of the church goes, so goes the church. And if I may make a sidebar comment here, there's a lesson here in this text on hermeneutics, on the philosophy of textual interpretation. We don't just get to come to this text this morning and say, well, this is my favorite text on how to preach and teach the Word. It says that we're all supposed to do it, so pastors sit down, and we're not going to have stand-up preaching anymore. We don't get to use our favorite text in Scripture to trump our other favorite texts in Scripture that we don't like as much. The reason for this is that we believe this entire book is inspired of God. God is speaking all of the words to the same degree, and God cannot lie. God cannot be internally inconsistent. So we cannot pit this text against all the other texts that command elders to preach and teach. What we must do is let this text speak along with those other texts and recognize that there is a place in the church for preaching and teaching by the elders, but there is also a place for every single believer to be, preach, to be teaching the Word of God to each other. These are complementary texts. They are not contradictory ones. It is a both-and, not an either-or situation when it comes to teaching in the church. Specifically, we are commanded to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Now, by now, in the third chapter of Colossians, about halfway through, we should be really familiar with Paul's focus on wisdom in this letter. He has brought it up over and over again, and in chapter 1, verse 9, he prayed that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom. In chapter 2, verse 3, he tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. In 2.23, he warned the Colossians about human-devised religion of false teachers that had merely the appearance of wisdom. Wisdom, as we've seen time and again, is a real buzzword in Paul's day. The Jews had their source of wisdom in the Old Testament, especially books like Proverbs and Psalms and Job and Ecclesiastes. And the Greeks had their source of wisdom in philosophy. And these false teachers, it seems, had some kind of weird amalgamation of both of them. But in contrast to all this, Paul says, the Colossians need to be teaching and admonishing one another with the real McCoy, with real spiritual wisdom. And where is that wisdom to be found? In the richly indwelling Word of Christ. Now, I don't think that our struggle in the church primarily comes from a failure to teach and admonish one another. I think this happens more or less on a daily basis, more or less nonstop. If you think about it, when a friend brings up a problem to you in conversation and asks you for advice, you're going to, to teach them something. You're going to admonish them about the danger of the way that you think they might already be going. Our, our danger is not that we fail to do this, but that we fail to do it in a manner consistent with the wisdom found in Holy Scripture. Are you teaching and admonishing your brothers and sisters in Christ in accordance with the indwelling word of Christ, the source of all wisdom. When you give advice or recommendations to others, what source do you draw on? Do you draw on your experience, your education, 
the latest how-to blog post you read on the internet, all things that are useful and helpful? But are you drawing first and foremost on the spiritual wisdom and understanding found nowhere else but the richly indwelling word of Christ? If we fail to draw on that, we will fail to allow the word to richly dwell in us and overflow into the lives of others. We will fail to teach and admonish them with real wisdom and we'll settle for just our own. But there's another danger we can face in the church. We can confine teaching and admonishing to so-called spiritual conversations. That if the topic is spiritual, if we're, if we're in active conversation with somebody about a spiritual topic, we can do it then, but we can't do it other times. This text will not let us get away with that. It says that we are to be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom by the means of singing, of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, you may be surprised at this move by Paul because we're really, really good about chopping up all the different churchy activities that we do. This morning, we all stood up and Seth and the band led us in singing and we sang some songs and now everybody but me is sitting down and I am up here teaching and there's not a song to be heard. So we, we divide these things in our mind. We think that that's the music, that's the singing, this is the teaching, and they're not the same thing. And there is a distinction there. Singing and preaching are not the same activity. And there is a command in Scripture for the church to do both things. But while all preaching is teaching, not all teaching is preaching. Sometimes teaching takes the form of singing. And that is what Paul is getting at here. Singing is one of the most powerful and effective and particularly memorable ways we have of teaching theology. Singing and, pre and preaching shouldn't be thought of as contradictory, as contrary activities in terms of purpose or content. It really irks me in some churches, not here of course, but in a lot of churches there's a very sharp distinction between the time of worship and the time of teaching. As though we can get up and we can, we can sing and we can praise God in music, but as soon as we open up the book that he wrote and begin to teach it and explain it and seek to apply it to our lives, worship just instantaneously stops. The same is true of teaching. Your pastors work hard at teaching the Bible to you every single week, and we hope you will leave this place with your minds and hearts filled with the content of Scripture. But there is something powerful and penetrating and memorable about singing theology to each other. I, I guarantee you, there is not a person in this room who could recite an entire sermon from start to finish. But I guarantee you, every single person in this room can sing at least one hymn or praise song from start to finish. This means that a very significant portion of your practical theology comes not from things you've heard in sermons, but from things you've heard in songs. That is part of why we make music and choosing good songs such a priority here at Trinity. 
There's a reason that Seth and David, who lead us in worship, are not just talented musicians. They are also capable preachers and small group leaders because musical talent is enough. They need to be able to teach you the word of God effectively because every single week when they get up here, they are teaching you God's word. They are teaching you doctrine, the word of Christ. But, but this text is not let the rest of us off the hook either. It does not confine the task to official worship leaders. All of us are supposed to be doing this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other. These terms are more or less interchangeable, but they suggest a diversity of compositions, different types of musical pieces with their content based on the Word of God and and perhaps the Old Testament Psalms in particular. But the great thing about this is that there is no specific level of musical ability that is specified. All of us, the whole church, each and every one of us can be obedient to this text. If you don't feel gifted to teach, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, you can obey this text. You can teach theology. You can teach the word of Christ to your brothers and sisters. Pick a good song. Pick an Isaac Watts hymn. Pick a praise chorus by Sovereign Grace or Sojourn and start singing, and you don't even have to sing it well, Paul says, to be teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. You do, however, need to do it with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, grammatically speaking, this can be taken in conjunction with the teaching or specifically with the singing. It can also be taken as yet another effect of the richly indwelling word of Christ. And all are true theologically. As the word of Christ richly dwells in you and leads you to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom By singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, you need to do it with thankfulness in your hearts to God, thankfulness which is itself a product of the richly indwelling word of Christ. This thankfulness is is meant to be in the heart or from the heart, not at all meaning to limit the extent of this thankfulness, but rather to expand it. When you sing these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you need to do it with a total, comprehensive, all-encompassing gratitude to God. It is a beautiful, amazing picture, the word of Christ richly dwelling in and among the people of Christ works itself out as those people can't stop singing about Christ to one another. And as they do, they grow in their knowledge and love for Christ and in their hatred of sin. I'm, I'm a huge fan of music. I, I am almost constantly listening to the radio or listening to my Amazon music subscription. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I, I have no qualms. But, but there is a dark side to professional recorded music. Because it leads us to think that unless we can sing like Adele or, or Justin Timberlake, we just need to keep our mouths shut. But singing is a natural part of human expression, especially of intense emotions. And this is part of what I love about sports, especially collegiate sports, because it's one of the few areas left in our culture where we feel comfortable erupting in song with total strangers. 
You can go to a college football game or a college basketball game, and you can file in quietly looking at your phone, not making eye contact with anybody else. But once you sit down and your team makes the game-winning touchdown or the game-winning three-pointer, you will jump to your feet and you will scream the fight song at the top of your lungs, and you don't care who around you hears it expressiveness, even in something as seemingly personal and embarrassing as singing, is natural, especially when we feel something deeply. And if the word of Christ is richly dwelling in us and it is filling our hearts with thanksgiving to God as it should be, we should find ourselves singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that serve to teach and admonish our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you don't find yourself doing this ever, a good question to ask might be, is the word of Christ dwelling in me at all? If there is no thankfulness in your heart to God. If there is not, not just happiness that you have nice things in your life, but thankfulness that God has made you and has sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, if you have never repented of your sins and placed your hope and faith in Christ, I invite you to do so now. Right where you're seated. If you have questions about what this means, I invite you to come and talk to me or talk to Pastor Dave or, or anybody else after the service and ask those questions and take this step of faith. And if you have placed your faith and your trust in Christ, then let this truth inform you the next time you are gathered for musical worship with believers. Make the connection between your head and your heart and your voice. Think about the words you were singing. Think about the truths of Scripture that lie behind those songs. And consider, too, that when you sing, you don't just offer worship and glory to God. You also teach and admonish your fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Let this truth inform you and let this truth drive you to seek out other opportunities to do this, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with other believers. As you drive home this afternoon, I am going to give you permission. You may pause in your rich and careful reflection and conversation about the sermon to, to pop in a CD, and, and you can sing some praise music on the way home from church just, just this one time. You're going to have my permission. When, when, you, when you gather as a community group, it can be this week, it can be next week, you can put anybody on the spot, spend a few minutes in song. Sing together with the people that you gather to do life with before or after you talk about the sermon. Leverage some of the musical gifts we have in this church and the great songs that we've been given as the Church of Christ and teach and admonish each other through singing. As the Word of Christ richly dwells in us as a church, we should expect it to overflow in deep songs of praise that glorify God and teach his truth to one another. But this is by no means the only effect that we should see from the indwelling word of Christ. Paul concludes this paragraph with a comprehensive command in verse 17 to live for Christ in every area of life. 
He writes, in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This command, where it's placed, really serves to summarize and conclude this whole paragraph that we've been working our way through going back to verse 12, and really serves to to put a cap on the entire chapter going back to verse 1. This is the ultimate working out of the Christian's resurrection life in Jesus Christ. Everything that that life is supposed to result in, seeking and setting our minds on things above in verses 1 and 2, putting to death whatever is earthly in us that characterized our old way of life in verses 5 to 11, and putting on the qualities of God's chosen ones, including love that binds everything in perfect harmony, and letting the peace of Christ ruin our hearts in verses 12 to 15. All of those things are summarized and reinforced in this final command. Whatever you do in word or deed, this is meant to be a sweeping, all-encompassing statement. It's in the absolute nominative in the Greek and placed at the beginning of the sentence for rhetorical effect to drive home this point. Paul is talking about everything that we do. The whole of our lives falls under the scope of this command that he gives. There's a parallel phrase, actually lots of parallel phrases elsewhere in Paul's writings. One in particular kind of bears this out. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, he writes, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. So so this command has no boundaries. It can't just be confined to spiritual things. Everything we say, everything we do, down to the food we eat and the beverages we drink, everything falls within the scope of this command. Now, I think most Bible-believing Christians, if you ask them, would say, yes, I believe that God is sovereign. He He is in control of all things. He has authority over all things, to command whatever he likes. But how often do you stop and think about the fact that God has complete and total authority over every area of your life? As in, God has the right to decide what you are permitted and not permitted to do. God has complete authority over your time your money, your possessions, your family, your career, your hobbies, your gifts, your talents. He has authority over your very body. Now, God has created us with real freedom and real responsibility, but he has not created us with complete and total autonomy. He is creator. We are his creatures. He has the right and the power to set the boundaries for sex, like DJ talked about two weeks ago. He has the right and the power to set boundaries on our entertainment and how we interact in relationships with other people. He has the right to command us not to think certain thoughts. Have you ever stopped and and noticed how many places in Scripture especially in the New Testament, we are commanded to stop thinking about certain things and think about other things instead? Verse 2 of this very chapter is one example. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. God has the command has the right to command us to do anything or to stop doing anything. And this goes down to our very thoughts. 
Ask yourself this morning, do you consider your entire life to be open to the command of God? I wonder if you've ever experienced the phenomenon of bouncing your thoughts during a sermon or a community group or, or while reading scripture. You'll be listening to something or, or reading something and it will touch on a painful topic, what the Puritans called a beloved sin. And in that moment, you bounce your thoughts. You quickly go from, from that topic, that area of application, to something less painful, some, some sin that you love less. Or perhaps some sin that somebody else is committing against you. You go from thinking, I need to confess and repent of my beloved sin, to I'll just confess and repent of some other sin that I love less. Or, I really wish so-and-so were here. They could really use this sermon this morning to prompt them to repent of their beloved sin. Have you done that this week? Have you done that this morning? during this sermon. If so, I beg you to stop because God has authority over your entire life and there is no area where he is not free to command you. And what does God through the Apostle Paul command here? He commands us to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you notice what kind of command this is. He's not primarily telling Christians to stop doing one kind of thing, and start doing something else. This is a command for the gray areas. This is a command for the neutrals, for the things not expressly addressed in Scripture. It is meant to fill in the gaps and give, a, give us a comprehensive command for the way that we are to live all of our lives. The emphasis in the command is not on what so much as how. Do everything, that's the what. In the name of the Lord Jesus, that's the how. And this phrase in Greek is identical to the one used elsewhere in the context of baptism, which is said to be in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the context of forgiveness, which is offered to all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And of receiving the Holy Spirit, who is given in the name of the Lord Jesus. Peter O'Brien writes that, In becoming a Christian, the believer calls upon Jesus as Lord, and comes under the authority of Christ. He belongs wholly to him. Thus, everything he says or does ought to be in the light of the fact that Jesus is Lord. His behavior should be entirely consistent with Jesus' character. Now, what does this look like practically? As always, when it comes to following Christ, we need to start with what we know to do and then work to what we don't know to do. So doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus starts with doing all of the specific practical things that have already been mentioned in this chapter. It starts with not doing the things prohibited earlier and then doing the things that have been explicitly commanded. But, but again, you're going to notice in this chapter that most of what Paul is talking about is more how we live our lives than specific things we need to do or stop doing. Now, there are some specifics, like sexual immorality that we talked about before. Christians need to stop committing that. They need to not do that again. That's very black or white. But most of the lists in this chapter leave us doing most of the same things, but in a different way. Doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus might not involve quitting your job. 
But it is going to mean that you show up and do your job with compassion, kindness, meekness, and patience. That, that right there should be enough to fill up your spiritual to-do list. If you show up at your job tomorrow or tonight or whenever and, and try to work this way, you will have plenty to do to keep you occupied. And because so much of our lives is consumed by work of various kinds, our vocations deserve special mention. So whether you are a full-time employee, a full-time mom, or a full-time student slash full-time employee, we need to think carefully about what it means to work at our vocations in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to give you a couple of rules of thumb for how to go about doing this. The first is that you need to remember that you work for God and not for men. Uh, I want you to turn just real quick to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Now, this text is directed at bond servants slash slaves and how they are to work for their masters. And I'm going to give a quick caveat. This is not Paul's ringing endorsement for slavery. Um, I don't have time to get into why I read it that way, uh, because it's a very complex topic. But if you want a good starting place to to see the way Paul thinks about slavery, I would encourage you to go and read the very, very short letter in the New Testament of Philemon. Uh, It is on the subject of a runaway slave named Onsimius, and it's a letter that actually serves to undercut and undermine the institution of Roman slavery. So with those caveats in mind, Let's look at this text and see what lessons it has for us in our vocations. It reads, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would obey Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Notice first that Paul says a a bondservant, kind of like an employee in our context, is to obey their employer. And notice too that they are to obey in a certain way, with fear and trembling. Not at all meaning a fear of reprisal or of punishment, but a reverential fear with a sincere heart, just as they would, in fact, obey Christ. This is the first thing that you need to take away regarding your vocation. Whatever you work at from 8 to 5, if you want to work at that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to work at it for Jesus Christ, not for your employer, not for your kids, not for your spouse or whoever. And and this is critical because we can think of all sorts of reasons not to like the people that we work for in our vocations. You may work for an incompetent, indifferent, inconsiderate boss. You may have disrespectful, ungrateful children that you have to raise. You may have professors that set unrealistic expectations on you and do not genuinely care whether you succeed or fail. But even if all those things are true, you need to obey with fear and trembling and a sincere heart just as you would obey Christ. 
The reason for this, the passage says, is because your service is ultimately rendered not to man, but to God who rewards those who do good. So regardless of the circumstances of your vocation, you can work at your vocation in the name of the Lord Jesus by working for the Lord Jesus and not for man. This means you're going to work hard. You're going to do your vocation with excellence. And it also means that you're going to work in a consistent way, not by way, this text says, of eye service or of people-pleasing. You're going to be the same person when your boss is in the room as opposed to when they are not in the room. And you're not going to break God's law in order to please them either. You won't sin to make your boss happy. You won't let your kids get away with things just so that you don't have to take the time to correct and reprove them. So the first rule of thumb for working for your vocation in the name of the Lord Jesus is to remember that you work for God and not for man. And the second rule that I want to leave you with is that you cannot make your vocation your God. If the first rule keeps us from taking our work too lightly, this rule keeps us from taking our work too seriously. If, if you look with me quickly at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 to 19, uh, it's a set of instructions that Moses gives to the people of God about how they are to live when they reach the promised land. They're going to have houses, flocks, herds of animals, gold, silver, all kinds of material prosperity. And Moses wants to warn them against forgetting where those things come from. He says in verse 17, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Working at our vocation in the name of the Lord Jesus means we don't make it ultimate. You don't idolize your vocation for the status it gives you, for the wealth it lets you earn. You look at your vocation as a good gift from God that he uses to provide for you and your family, that he uses to bless others and bring glory to himself. If you can work hard at your vocation as unto God without making it into a God, then you will be doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as this text commands us. And this leads us directly to the conclusion of this verse, where Paul commands us to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus while giving thanks to God the Father through him. All that you do in the Christian life is to be accompanied by thanksgiving. There is nothing that you earn or accomplish in this life that you did not receive from God. Ephesians 2.10 says that Christians are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this means the very best you do, your most glorious achievements and accomplishments, God 
has done through you for your good and for his glory. So in all that you do, you need to give thanks to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Christ's life and his death and his resurrection are obviously the ultimate grounds and reason that we have for thanksgiving, but this text also reflects that Christ is the mediator of our thanksgiving to God. Christ has opened the way for you to go to God and give him thanks for all that he has given you and all that he does through you for his glory, for your good, and you can do that in the name of the Lord Jesus. And and lest we take this text lightly, as just kind of a flowery add-on by Paul, a good thing to say at the end of a text, consider Paul's words in Romans 1.21. Speaking of human beings apart from Christ, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. A lack of thanksgiving is one of the hallmarks of living in the darkness, living estranged from God as Father. Jesus, in contrast, has opened our hearts to make us thankful to God our Father, and he has given us access to God so that we can go to him and offer him thanks. And we can do that through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we share in by faith with him. Thanksgiving ought to be one of the hallmarks of the Christian life. This is the sixth time, the sixth time in this short letter that Paul has already brought up the topic of giving thanks to God. In chapter 1, verse 3, he described his own prayers for the Colossians and mentioned thanksgiving for them and for their faith. In chapter 1, verse 12, he prayed that thanksgiving would characterize the Colossians' lives. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says that thanksgiving is supposed to be a defining feature of the life that is rooted in and built up in Christ. Last week, David noted that being thankful is one of the virtues that Colossians are to put on in place of the vices that characterize their old life. And we've already seen this morning in chapter 3, verse 16, that thankfulness is meant to characterize our singing and teaching to one another. At the risk of stating the obvious, you need to be thankful to God. You should regularly think about all that he has given you, literally every good thing that you have that is a gift from him, and you should stop and pray and give thanks to him. And as you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, you should also give thanks to God, the Father, for the vocation that he has placed you in for the ability to make a living or take care of a home and children or pursue an education or serve others as a volunteer without receiving a paycheck? Are you working at everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? At your vocation in the name of the Lord Jesus? Do you treat your job, your home, your children, your schooling, your volunteering as opportunities to live out the new life that you have in Christ by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the indwelling living word. Just imagine this morning, what would obedience to Christ look like in every area of your life if you were doing this? 
and ask yourself, does my life right now match up with that? Are you giving thanks to God as you live your daily life for the gifts that he gives, no matter how big or small, for bringing good and grace to you out of the most difficult of times, for the gift of his son in whose life and death and resurrection you have come to share and in whom you have put off the old self and put on the new, in whom you have access to go to God who you were once estranged from to give thanks to him for all he has given to you. We use the phrase life-changing far too readily in our culture. We think about winning the lottery like this. We, we call a lottery win a life-changing amount of money. Sometimes we call a, a big win by our favorite sports team or seeing a really great movie as a, as a life-changing event. Sometimes we, we hit a little bit nearer to the mark, like when we think about the moment we met our spouse, the moment our kids were born, the moment we found out we had cancer, the moment we lost a loved one. The life and the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus is truly, comprehensively, life-changing. Being joined to Christ by faith and sharing in his life and his death and his resurrection, that means that every area of our lives, for every moment of every day, will be radically different. We need to yield to his word in our lives, in broken yet beautiful community with other believers, and a resolve to do everything in word or deed, no matter how big or small, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the old hymn goes, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Let's pray. Jesus, all that we have is from you. You have made us. You pursued us when we were your enemies. You have raised us and caused us to share in your life and your death and resurrection. You've caused your spirit and your word to richly dwell in us. And you've, you've charted out a course for how this is supposed to work out in our lives. You have given us access to God so that we can say thank you to him for all that he does in us and through us. Everything we have is from you. Every good thing. Would you give us a vision this morning of what a life lived like that would look like? Lord, as we think about this text this week, please let us fall under its ministrations. Let us have our old self cut away and our new self pruned to be more and more like you. And let that, Lord, especially overflow in this body of believers. Let us be a singing, joyful people that teaches and admonishes each other your word at all times. And Lord, for all that we have left unsaid, would you, would you do that too? We ask these things in your precious name, Lord. Amen.